Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, from the Shangri-La Hotel in downtown Toronto. Welcome to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you joining us through either the webcast or our podcast, welcome to the meeting. Today we present our business and trade panel. I've been around politics and government for longer than I care to admit, and I can't recall a period of more volatility in the state of international affairs than today. We see it in virtually every region of the globe. The erosion of the geopolitical order is real. The foundations of the institutions vital to Western success are being shaken, and it is happening before our very eyes. The World Economic Forum recently asked CEOs and leaders to name the top global risks that most concern them. And the, and the results were all problems that have only accelerated in recent years. Large-scale involuntary migration, cyber attacks, asset bubbles, extreme weather and global warming, and the failure of national governments. All of these issues are driven by political and economic forces that have disrupted the long-standing ways of doing business, upended the approach to how we conduct global affairs. And so, as the Empire Club does, it's time to bring together some smart people to tackle these pressing issues. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the stage a distinguished panel who can help us make sense of this new world order. First up is Goldie Hyder, President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. Goldie is joined by Jean Charest, the former Premier of Quebec and Deputy Prime Minister, now partner at McCarthy Tetro. Nicole Verkint is the founder and CEO of aerospace and defense startup OMX. <laughs> Peter McKay. <laughs> Peter McKay, former Foreign Affairs Minister and partner at Baker McKenzie, and uh, handling this clever group will be BNN News anchor John Ehrlichman. Over to the panelists. Thanks, Mike. Um, and well said, this is an all-star panel, and we did just get through that federal election that seemed a little light on, on substantive details and, and issues, so hopefully we can dive into some of those get some helpful answers today. Um, thank you to all of you. Uh, jean Charlie, I think I'll start with you. Um, I think one of the themes after the election that everybody is chewing on is this idea of a divided nation. Uh, Western alienation seems to have come out of the election. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we stand here after election day? Well, well let's give it some context. First of all, Mike, thank you for the invitation and uh, the Empire Club. Let's give it some context. Canada is one of the most decentralized federations in the world. The only other country I know more decentralized than Canada is Belgium, and no one knows how Belgium works. So take that into account. Canada, as always, historically, there have been regional differences. And what varies is the level of intensity, really, I find, and the ability to you know, have a common project in the country. Now, decidedly, after this election campaign, the country is more divided and uh, geographically divided. And one of the challenges of the new government will be to try to find some common ground. It creates opportunities for the premiers who could actually fill the void if they chose to do so. Two of them will, pro will figure prominently, Jason McKenney in Alberta, and the other one is Legault in Quebec, and how they choose to manage the relationship with the federal government and among themselves will determine a good, good part of that. I, I guess what I'm saying, and I'll just close that this is, the parallels with 72 with Trudeau's father are fascinating. 
The Bloc had a chunk of seats in this campaign. It was the Crédit Social, which most of you in this room don't even remember, in 1972, who had a chunk of seats. In 1972, there was also these regional tensions. The West was out. So it, it's not new, but it's, it's still something that is a very real and deep concern for the new government, and they, it needs to be addressed. Uh, and it has opened the door for solutions, because I think we are searching for some. I mean, Goldie, you guys, over the last couple of weeks, have been putting forward a lot of policy recommendations, uh, given the state of affairs here in this country. Well, look, this last election, um, you know, obviously was uh, one in which every political party claimed victory on election night. Uh, some of them may still be giving their speeches. I'm not sure if they've wrapped up yet. But, uh, the, I mean, the fact is, we know who lost. And, and who lost is the people of Canada. Because the truth is, we deserved, we deserved a much better campaign from our political leaders to talk about the actual things that are going on in the world that are causing our families anxiety. You're wondering why you're, you know, your 27-year-old is moving back into your basement. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on out there, and I think it was a lost opportunity. It was a moment in which real leadership would have allowed us to have had the kinds of conversations about difficult issues, how to grow the economy. Uh, how are we going to reconcile the economy and the environment? What are we going to do in the global environment in which we find ourselves, where for 75 years, you know, the British had our back, for 75 or so years, the Americans had our back. Who has our back now? How do we navigate in that world? None of these things emerged. And I think it's, a, it's a, uh, incumbent upon us, uh, in the other institutions, if you will, from business to media and others, to say it doesn't have to be this way that we can advocate for good public policy ideas. And I encourage you to have a look at our website, itsaboutcanada.ca, where we've been engaging with Canadians and engaging with stakeholders on just six very simple policy areas. I won't go through them all here, but suffice to say, they are often the answer to the questions, what's keeping people up at night? It's these kinds of things. And what people are yearning for uh, is leadership. And one of the reasons I sleep well at night still is I, I believe Canadians have a collective wisdom that we should not underestimate. We're smart. You are a smart group of people. And if we treat you with respect and have a discussion and a dialogue, and yes, we can disagree. It's okay. It's a democracy. We're allowed to do that. People usually have enough sensibilities to arrive at, as my dad likes to say, Canadians are people of the radical middle. They'll find that spot. And so this to me, and thank you to the Empire Club for doing this, but it's a chance for us to reclaim lost ground, uh, what that last campaign represented. Uh, Peter McKay, you've managed to stay out of the headlines the last couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> um, a couple of days. Yeah. Well, we, we heard that word leadership. Goldie used that word leadership. I mean, what does leadership mean? What does leadership mean today if we are going to be looking to these leaders of these different parties and the prime minister to lead us through these issues? What exactly does that mean from your perspective? Right. Thank you, John, and, and to Mike and Kent and the Empire Club. Uh, appreciate this opportunity to have uh, public dialogue, and I'm not looking to make headlines. Um, <laughs> We don't mind if you do. Leadership is, is obviously elusive. Uh, Jean Charest, amongst us here, uh, has worn that mantle. Uh, Jean, in fact, and I've always said this, is in large part the reason I got into politics. Thanks a lot, Jean. You'll <laughs> uh, forgive me one day. <laughs> I, I think I would associate myself much with what Goldie said about Canadians looking for, uh, you know, a North Star, a, a point where they were going to find solutions to their challenges, whether it be the cost of housing, the cost of living generally. There was a lot of talk, but sort of a malaise around affordability being the big issue in this campaign. There was no big idea. 
in this campaign. The closest, I would say, was Andrew Scheer's contention that we needed a, a pipeline or perhaps a financial corridor across the country, which we can talk about that, but it, it presents, I think, an, an incredible opportunity. Not a new opportunity, uh, but one that would solidify some of these challenges that we have in our energy and resource sector. But leadership is getting results. And I think what we saw and what we have seen over time is more and more of the elevated rhetoric and less how do we get to the end point where we're in fact going to be able to lessen the anxiety and the pressures domestically but internationally as well. Because in addition to what was missing in this very important democratic exercise was talk of Canada's place in the world, a foreign affairs platform coming from any of the parties. There was no real discussion, quite frankly, on security, which troubles me enormously, given what's happening with the opening of Arctic waters, the diminishing of defense capabilities in the face of the rise of China, Russian aggression, cyber attacks. We have to be clear-eyed and very prescient when we look at the threats that are out there, that exist to Canada, and all that we hold dear. And so uh, one would have hoped that we would have moved beyond tax breaks, tax cuts, sort of more prosaic, appealing efforts to get votes and look beyond the horizon as to what the threats are. And that's what leadership is. It's the ability to look around the corner. It's the ability to provide costed but practical answers and solutions. I do want to circle back on the issues of foreign policy, but Nicole, I mean, uh, Peter, talking about building pipelines, what about just building a business? You're our go-to on that, literally being in the trenches and doing that in this environment right now. Well, I think through this exercise that we went through with the BCC, um, with Goldie's leadership, is that we found that like businesses and entrepreneurs are going to do their thing. There's a million small businesses in this country, so there's at least a million people that stay up at night worried about cash flow and wanting to grow their businesses and wanting to actually use these free trade agreements that we put in place. But what we found through some of this data is that the administrative burden is increasingly, regulatory burden is getting worse and worse every single year. Our tax system is incredibly complex. We don't really have enough mechanisms in our tax policy to actually encourage more entrepreneurship. From what I see from an entrepreneur's perspective is we just have all these little, you know, we were joking about it just being Halloween. They're like little trick-or-treat candies that entrepreneurs get. You know, if you do a whole bunch of paperwork, you can get $20,000 from IRAP, and then you do a whole bunch more, and you can maybe get your shred back if you prove that it was scientifically too risky for you to start in the first place. And, and so you have to go through so much of this um, bureaucracy, whereas I think that if we do a complete overhaul and look at our, our tax system and our policies in place, and we find out ways to just unleash more entrepreneurship, then I think we have a great opportunity in front of us because we have a very multicultural country. Um, we should be the country that bridges to sell to the rest of the world because of the community that we have here. I mean, I look at my team here in Toronto, and we didn't do it on purpose, but we have people from all over the world working in our team and selling around the world in a digital manner. So there's, we don't, I don't want to, you know, be too negative about this because there's real opportunity within our culture, but from a government policy perspective, I think we need to take away a lot of the barriers. We don't need to be just handing out more grants and creating a new program. I think we just need to start removing some of these barriers. Well, speaking of global and, and coming back to the issue of immigration and people coming here, I mean, Goldie, you've talked a lot in your own policy about the benefits this country has seen from a surge in immigration. You'd like to see more. 
Well, here's the good news. Of all the things that kept me up at night during the campaign was the concern that we were about to discover that Canadians are really no different than the rest of the world. That it was possible to be taken to a deep, dark place because of our anxieties, because of our stress, and start turning on the very things that built this country. Immigration, trade, and investment. So if there's one accolade, I guess I would say to our major political parties is thank you for listening to those of us in business and others who said, don't go there. It's a very slippery slope. Do not go there because one of the things that we think is our advantage is our human resources as much as our natural resources. You know, one of the things we lack in this country is any kind of an industrial policy. You know, I, I know it's a danger these days to use sports metaphors, but um, <laughs> I will. Uh, I will say one. You know, we're 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 a country born on third, and we think we hit a triple. We've had it easy. <laughs> We've had it really, really easy. We've had the Americans next to us. They've taken care of us for the most part. You know, it's been easy to be Canadian. And yet, when our immigrants come here, we've also fallen into that sense of complacency to some extent and done all our businesses with the U.S. So digital is making it possible to really expand. And I think we should be promoting uh, aggressively the benefits uh, of immigration. The reality is the demographics are awful in a decade. We're going to have less people working and more people retiring. So if you're worried about your healthcare system being in a hallway today, might be in a parking lot by the time your turn comes to be <laughs> as a senior. So we've got to do something about that. And I think we have to work very hard to make sure, and John, I say this with great respect, but some of it does have to come from Quebec. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate that the premier and the government first act was to cut immigration levels in a province in which True. it needs more immigrants because there's significant labor shortage. And so culturally, I think we've got to have honest conversations about how immigration has worked for Canada. Yep. I think if I could just add quickly to that and, and to play off what Nicole said, I mean, interestingly, um, this election didn't, except for one perhaps party, delve into a discussion around cuts to immigration. Everybody's saying that immigration has to improve. Everybody in this room uh, came from somewhere or their family came from somewhere. Sean, you and I are of Irish descent. Uh, the reality is that in order for our demographic to improve and to keep pace with the world, in addition to having you know, healthy trade relations, which Canada is in a very advantageous position. We're, we're not only on third, we're probably crossing the plate when one considers comprehensive economic trade agreement with the European Union. We're hopefully going to get USMCA through. We should be first in line with the UK post-Brexit, and on and on it goes. South Korea, Japan, other countries where Canadian goods are in high demand and we're, we're thought favorably. However, in spite of the problems that we often discuss and, and watch, not with glee, but with amazement, what, what's happening in the United States, they went in the direction that I think Nicole would, would advocate. They've lowered their taxes yeah. for businesses and persons. They have stripped away some of the regulatory regime and the malaise and the red tape. They have become energy independent, which has been hugely advantageous to the U.S. economy. And they are outpacing Canada uh, at an alarming rate. We get some of the, the backdraft of their prosperity, but it's going to catch up to us fairly soon. The people are going to look at a high tax, high regulatory environment and look across the lake at Michigan, if we're going to use Toronto as the center of the universe, then we... It's called playing to the crowd, Peter. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm from the East Coast, where, where we also me. feel a degree of alienation. But we, uh, we are now the biggest competitors of the United States. We very much, of course... Uh, work with them, and that reputation and that uh, relationship is key to our success. 
But we will get left behind fairly quickly in this world, in this environment, unless we follow suit in some of those areas of deregulation and taxes. Well, since we're talking a little bit about some of the Trump policies and we've moved on from our election to the election south of the border, um, who here thinks uh, Donald Trump's going to get reelected? All of us. One? Everybody? Yeah. I think he gets reelected. No? Well, you're not sure. <clears throat> as it stands now? Yeah. Can I, uh, just to make a comment, I, th I find it interesting that all of us on the stage today <clears throat> are essentially saying the same thing. Canada is a great country. We shouldn't be. We're talking about the things that we're, is a fantastic country, one of the best in the world. I mean, it's a lot. If, if citizenship's a lottery, we won first prize. But what we're all saying is two things. We're, we're losing ground, and mm -hmm. we can do a heck of a lot better. Yeah. That's what I guess what we're seeing. And uh, you talk to the Americans, and back to your question, mm -hmm. Trump, his reduction of the corporate tax rate has now deprived Canada of one of the great uh, advantages we had in attracting uh, investment. And we cannot have a fiscal policy that is not aligned with the United States. I mean, it's, that's the reality of life. We have to be in alignment and we have to be competitive because that's the reality. I'll give you one example. I'll, you'll find a lot of folks who say we should increase the GST in Canada. You know, great, great idea, except that we live next to the United States. Increase the GST. I mean, so. Well, that's part of it. I do want to talk, say a word about immigration because you raised that. My own belief is that we have an extraordinary opportunity to be contrarian to the rest of the world, which yes. includes Trump and Europe. Canada, like a lot of other countries, has an aging population. We need people. We need researchers. We need professionals. We need tradespeople. And we need non-skilled labor. We are the country in the world that does immigration best because we do integration best. And we have enough intuition to know we can't take that for granted. We should never take for granted. I like your remark, Goldie, of us resisting, or leadership, resisting the temptation of the drug of politics, of going to the lowest common denominator and, you know, trying to excite people about immigration and how we should. That would be a terrible tragedy for Canada. And we've done things. There's two things I'm very proud I did when I was in government. We did a deal with France. A recognition of qualifications. And the idea was to make it as seamless as possible for the French to come to Quebec and us to go there. You're a doctor in France, you're a doctor in Quebec. Even a lawyer in Quebec and a lawyer in France. And it covers 81 professions and trades. Wow. That's where the future is. And there's a debate right now in Quebec because I did a, we did a student program where students who come to Quebec are trained in Quebec and get a diploma are on a fast track to get Canadian citizenship. Now, the government of Legault has just axed part of the program, as incredible as it may seem. When you think of it, they, they come to Quebec, they choose, they're partly integrated because they live there for three years. We don't have to ask ourselves, are they trained or well qualified? We train them. And yet, these are decisions that, uh, so those, those are the things I think we have to pay attention to. Jean, all of that is true in terms of our ability to attract and to keep the doors open. And every, I think everybody agrees generally that nobody's saying don't come. No. But they're saying make it fast, make it fair, wow. and make it orderly. And use the front door so that you know, there, there is a sense of, of yeah. equity as to those who are coming. Now, there's exceptions for refugees and, and uh, certain categories. But you know, the, the entire issue of immigration can go to a very dark place quickly. But on your more practical comment about accepting credentials and having people come and, and fill the, the need in our economy, we've got to get it straight between provinces. 
I mean, we, we are still at, at a place where, you know, we're looking at provisions of our Constitution going back to the 1800s, and you can't pick up a case of beer in New Brunswick and bring it to Quebec. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous where we are in terms of accepting a person's <coughs> credentials if, they're, you know, if they have a red seal approval as an electrician in, in Nova Scotia. They can't necessarily work in Alberta. We, we have to be able to get past that. Mm. I agree. Um, we haven't addressed this uh, head-on, but the idea of the diversification of the economy itself, yeah. right? I mean, if we're talking about uh, the importance of the energy industry, let's also talk about finding new avenues of growth. I mean, heck, Saudi Arabia is having that conversation as we speak. Certainly, we've seen the situation in Norway. Nicole, you've spent a lot of time uh, in the world of technology. Um, what are you hearing from uh, or, or seeing with your own business yeah. or with the entrepreneurs you speak with about the ability of all this great young talent across the country being able to build new businesses that help to make the economy more diverse? Well, exactly, and it's what they're saying. We have to tie our immigration policy to our economic policy. And I know we had a startup visa for entrepreneurs who wanted to come here and start companies. All the tech companies I know of, the biggest struggle we have is, is, is talent and very specific skills. So it could be in machine, it could be technologists. It could be very, very specific skills. We're having a huge, a very, very hard time attracting those people and getting enough people. And um, so I think if we can tie these things together... It would, be, it would be really good. But if you look at Saudi Arabia, you brought it up, they have Vision 2030. This is what we want to be by 2030. We want to be diversified. We want to be in these sectors. We want to have <coughs> huge cybersecurity specialization, et cetera. We, I haven't seen that in Canada. We didn't see it during the election. This is our Vision 2030, and this is why you should immigrate here, and this is why you know, we're going to be the AI center for the world. We're going to you know, be the clean tech sector to sell all around the world. We haven't... I don't think we've gotten together, to your point about the industrial policy, but you bring up Saudi Arabia because they have a vision 2030, and now you can tie your immigration to going and finding the best people in those certain areas and those certain skills and begging them to come, incentivizing them to come. I can tie a couple of points together here. I mean, part of this is about our culture, right? It is that culture of comfort and complacency, and now I would say cockiness. We're feeling smug about the fact that we don't have the problems that America does or the UK does or parts of Europe does. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves. I wish instead of $2,000 for camping, people got a free ticket to go somewhere in the world and have a look at what's going on. The amount of travel that I think we all get an opportunity to do and see, and you start wondering to yourself, are, are we the first world or is it shifting? Because the, the, the infrastructure that's being developed in these other countries, the, the hunger uh, with which, just give me, I'll give you an example that's not an Asian example. I was just in Ireland. You know, here's a country of, of the size of GTA, 5 million people pro-immigration, pro-investment. Their investment agency to attract investment to Ireland has existed for 70 years. Ours was born less than two years ago because we woke up to the idea that just maybe America is an unreliable partner on all things, that we actually are a competitor and that, they're a, yes, they're a consumer, but they also compete. 70 years they've had it there. They have what we call corporate welfare, but in forms of R&D tax credits and the ability to, like, uh, encourage you to have employment outside of the major city of Dublin, and they give you a compensation <coughs> for your employees. There was no debate in the public about any of the things because our, their political parties don't go there. They've realized that they have no choice as little Ireland to do anything but make sure that these policies remain popular. Whereas I think we've had the luxury, to, given our complacency, to, you know, we can fight for things and fight against things. And you're right, because everything that you said is true. But I would add that what people are really learning, yearning for is leadership and a plan. 
This election had absolutely no economic plan. All of it was about redistribution from all of the parties. I'm in a nonpartisan role, so it's pox on all your houses moment. But nobody gave us any hope of a plan, right? And people deserve that. They're, they're smart. And when they turned their attention to an election, they were hoping for a plan. And I would suggest to you that the next political party to win a majority government at the federal level in Canada will be one that creates and unites us around a national purpose and has a plan on how to execute that. That party will win a majority government. John, there's one question I think we should ask ourselves after this campaign. Is this campaign going to become the new norm, the new normal? And I'm concerned about that. I mean, maybe because we're, we Social all... Social media. I mean, is it so... Because it cannot become the new normal. I think we should be clear on that in, uh, in saying this to our political leadership. We cannot have another campaign. One example is foreign policy. Foreign policy has never been a staple of federal election campaigns, contrary to a good reason. Remember my old boss, Joe Clark, said, there's only votes to be lost in foreign policy, nothing to be gained. (laughs) This was one campaign where foreign policy should have been debated, really. I mean, there's the point you make about the United States, something's changed dramatically for Canada. We always assumed the United States would stand next to us. Well, that's not true anymore. Well, and when one looks outside our borders, it's very instructive, too. There, there is this democratic deadlock in a lot of countries, the U.S. being the most obvious example, but the U.K. We used to look at some of the European Union countries and say, you know, that's a flawed democracy. They can't get anything done. We're headed in that direction, and arguably there, with a minority parliament, it'll be interesting to see how the prime minister is able to address not only the minority parliament, but the divisions that this panel began with in, in discussing and we all have friends or family in Western Canada, and they are apoplectic. Not, not at the outcome of the election, but of the prospects of them being able to deal with their biggest issue, which is getting their product, their resource, oil and gas, bitumen, to Tidewater. And no one has come up with a plan as yet that seems viable. The people of Canada own a pipeline, but we're not there yet. There's not... They're not breaking ground. The pipe is there. Uh, It's twinning, by the way. It's not building a new pipeline. There may be discussions again of Energy East, if we can crack that nut in Quebec and have that discussion in in an open and and honest way. But these divisions within the country are job one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the resurgent bloc, we, we can talk about the reasons behind that, but really Western alienation to me is a, a very real issue. And people who voted you know, anything other than the government were in many ways voting for their energy sector and for jobs. They were saying, we don't want a plan that involves employment insurance. We want the opportunity to recapture, and and Jean's point about this being very similar in terms of the atmosphere in 72, that animosity is real, and we had better get our heads around that because that can cause even more fissures within the, the union and the federation that can create, again, an atmosphere or an impression outside the country that not only are we a high tax, high regulations, but we're not a unified country. Yeah. And therefore, that creates instability and uncertainty. You're, you're talking about things in the business press, for example, that are somewhat intangible. But then in the last week, we saw something very tangible. Husky in, and in Canada. And Canada deciding they want to basically move to the United States. Um, well, that's because they don't see that this malaise is going to be addressed. And look, this idea that we should, you know, 
buy oil and gas from Saudi Arabia, from Iran, Venezuela, you know, countries who we criticize their human rights records, we're, we're buying their product and propping up tyrants. And we have a product in Canada. The United Nations has said we're going to be using oil and gas for the next 30 or 40 years. United Arab Emirates has just surpassed Qatar as, as one of the bigger suppliers. We are going to continue as we transition to green energy. But Nicole touched on this. How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to generate the research and development to make the necessary transitions to improve upon existing alternative energies? Well, we're going to pay for it, in my opinion, by capitalizing on the billions of dollars that can be generated from selling ethical oil and gas yeah. to the European Union, to Asian markets, and doing it through ports, through LNG tankers, refining it in Canada, I mean, and, and employing thousands of Canadians. And it will be a kickstart from our economy. We've seen it. We are giving our oil and gas product away right now to the United States of America and buying it back. It's perverse what we're doing. It's like owning a bread store and buying bread. That's what we're doing in Canada mm -hmm. right now. Hmm. Um, and the bread store is what drives the entire economy. Right. <laughs> Big portion of it. Yeah. Um, uh, Jean Charest, you were talking about um, uh, foreign policy on the election campaign, yeah. uh, not seeing much of it. Uh, let's get into a conversation around China, shall we? Um, yeah. Because I think right now uh, everybody's wondering what our approach will be going forward in the, in the markets every day. We're watching the negotiations between the Chinese and, uh, and the Americans. Uh, Canada um, doesn't seem to have much of a voice uh, in that back and forth dialogue. That does seem to be part of the strategy, but does anybody here have any ideas on what the ideal strategy would be if we want to be more proactive and on something like that? Let's put Canada and China in context. For a hundred years, this is a hundred years, Canada has had, vis-a-vis -vis China, a sovereign policy, independent policy from the United States. This goes back to the Richardson family in Manitoba selling grain, to Dr. Norma Bethune, who was part of the Long March, to the progressive conservative government of John Diefenbaker and Alvin Hamilton, the minister of agriculture, selling grain to China during a period of famine when no one else would, following Pierre Elliott Trudeau in 1970, it'll be the 50th anniversary this year, establishing diplomatic relations with China, independent of whatever the American policy was. This was an independent, sovereign, made-in-Canada policy vis-a-vis -vis China. And now, where are we? I mean, we've, our policy vis-a-vis -vis China has been hijacked by Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to project what the policy would be, but one thing I need, I think we all need to get clear in Canada, whatever policy we have vis-a-vis -vis China should be our policy, not driven by someone else. A, that's the first thing. The second thing, China is an emerging superpower. So if you think you can just toss that aside and pretend they don't exist, good luck. Canada does need to think through what our relationship is with China, but make it our own policy and not the policy of someone else. And so, uh, so that, I think, will be... This will be a, big, a very important challenge for the next government, and all the parties should be involved. Who's paying the price now for what's happening with China? Canola growers? Pork. So, pork producers? Michael. Beef Michael. producers? Michael and Michael, who are paying the price. I mean, that's part of the whole story. So we need to re-engage and, uh, and get it right. And, uh, and, and that would be the first. But we should not be uh, kowtowing 
to another government in regards to our relationship with China. I'm not saying we should ignore them. Don't make the mistake. I'm not saying ignore the United States. Not at all. But at the end of the day, we're a sovereign, independent country. We've had 100 years of our own policy towards China, and the next 100 years should be a Canadian policy towards China. It's, um, it's an enormously complex issue. The, the anomaly being the occupant of the White House and this issue around the Huawei chief financial officer who's held in Canada as a result of an extradition treaty. You know, I've heard people say, well, we should just let her go. Well, if we think we have problems when we can't get our phone calls returned from Beijing, picture a world in which Canada doesn't get the White House to phone us back. So I don't disagree with Jean, but we have to manage the relationship with the United States simultaneous to this effort of getting Canada, China back on track. This ban that we have seen on Canadian products has the potential to get worse if we mismanagement. You know, I, I come from a, a part of the country where if the seafood industry was to suffer the same type of, of ban or tariff um, that we're seeing in, in the ag sector, this is devastating. I mean, one thing the Canadian government should be doing right now is buying those excess stores and sending them to the Arctic. That's a simple, at least short-term, fix for all those warehouses that are full of Canadian product. Send them to northern and aboriginal communities. But that's an aside. It doesn't get us where we need to be with China. Having a new ambassador there who has extensive experience mm -hmm. in the region, I, I think, was an inspired choice. Yep. And I hope that uh, Dominic Barton is able to have that engagement. But it is going to take government to government. And I'll tell you one other thing, and I don't want this to sound partisan, but we can't lecture China. We can't hector them. We can't go there and say, you should be more like us. Because if we start down that road, and, and we saw it actually hinder some of the USMCA discussions, you get shown the door to the parking lot. You don't get invited back. Yep. And they don't have a serious discussion. If you start telling you know, a country that has 1.4 billion people how we in Canada have made a multicultural you know, mosaic work for us, that's not going to get us where we need to be. It has to be serious, business-like, and I would dare say transactional with mm -hmm. China. Because we do have products that they want, but we still have a, a very large deficit when it comes to what we're buying from China versus what they take from us. I think, John, if I can, it, yeah. it, um, what's missing is, is an actual policy towards China, but actually a global strategy. Uh, we haven't had a foreign policy review. It started up briefly in 2001, got interrupted, uh, and then we kind of picked it up in 05, 06, but nothing's really happened. Uh, a lot's happened in the world <laughs> since, since those days, and we really need to sit down as Canadians and figure out how are we going to navigate this world, which is a much more complicated quagmire in which to figure our way forward, given that our you know, reliable partner is no longer reliable. And I think that's not a bad thing for Canada, this epiphany of realizing we've got to figure it out ourselves and exercise our sovereignty. We got lazy. We got comfortable. We got told which wars to go in. We had our foreign policy being made. We had our energy being you know, seconded, literally. I mean, we, we were just gone for the ride. And so I hope this is a seminal moment for the country to say, hang on a minute here. What do we want to be? What's our role in the world? Because if anybody believes that you're, you're, you know, we're going to diversify our trade and skip over China, who's not in an emerging market, it's a re-emerging market. This society, this is the Asian in me coming up, we're like 5,000 years old. So excuse me if I say to you, a little 152-year-old country, you're, the, you're just like a toddler in the global environment. And you're coming and telling me how to live my life? 
and everything to do, we have got to stop that. Peter's absolutely right. That moralizing, that preachiness has got to end. Because as, uh, as I think the, you know, the Prime Minister witnessed on, uh, on Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj, you get called out on all that stuff, right? Because governing is hard. Governing, you actually find yourself come up against your values and your principles from time to time. And governments of red and blue stripes, red and blue stripes have found a way to be true to Canadian values, but also recognize the importance of growing our economy and building a plan uh, in doing that. And so I feel very strongly, I'm actually on my way to China uh, all of next week, in Beijing and Shanghai, that, and as I say to our business colleagues there, you know, mom and dad are going to fight from time to time. That's the governments, right? But why should the kids suffer? Why should businesses, student exchanges, provinces who had nothing to do with this thing, why should we suffer? We have to got to maintain a relationship because it's very hard to do start-stop in business. You're in, you're out, you're in. You, you, no, you, you, we've got to have a relationship here. And so I think we have to be much more pragmatic, much more shrewd, much more strategic, much more sensible in our approach to global policy as opposed to, we're, here, we're from Canada, we're here to tell you how to live your life. Because let me tell you what the other side says. We've got a few things we'd like to talk to you about in your country. Your treatment of indigenous communities, for starters. You know, the fact that you're a G7 country, <coughs> even though we're a G10 economy, that a homelessness in Toronto, in Montreal, in Calgary. So it's really rich to run around the world telling everybody how they should live their life. We should do a lot better job identifying how we can improve our own lives, including things like Peter mentioned on interprovincial trade and stuff. How can you be a free trader and have that? So enough of that portraying our, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know what to say, but our, our, our brand that said, you know, we had this popular... No, enough. It hasn't worked for us, and we need to take stock of that over the last four years and say, are we ahead today or behind? And in instances like China and stuff, I think be careful what you wish for. We've got to figure it out. Well, I, I would just pick up on, on the point of red and blue. I, I, frankly, am more concerned right now when we look outward about democratic and non-democratic. And if you're sitting in, in the Kremlin or you're Xi Jinping, you're now looking at many of the world's democracies and you're saying, you see, it's not working out so well for them. And Beijing is more of a capitalist communist system now where we're, we're competing with them. But... You know, you're right, Goldie, we have to thread this needle between being a country that preaches or a country that is deferential, because we're all wearing poppies. And yes, our, our country celebrated its 150th, and, uh, you know, we were dragged into world wars in some ways, but we had a full beach at Dieppe, at Juneau. I mean, we should never forget that. We're celebrating the 75th. We just celebrated the 100th of the First World War. Robert Borden signed the Treaty of Versailles, and we were part of the League of Nations because in those two wars, over 100,000 Canadians, an eighth of our population in World War I were in uniform. And we went to those far-off places. Many of them at that time were immigrants who had come to Canada who had fled communist regimes. And so they were fighting for freedom, in some cases, in the countries that they had left. And that's an important part of our history when we look out into the world, particularly in the Asia-Pacific, where the Chinese are building islands in contested waters. You know what else they're building? Icebreakers and aircraft carriers. This is a country that absolutely is characterized as a rising power and, and a, a, you know, a superpower. But they don't have any ice off the coast of China. And they've never been involved in an extraterritorial war. 
But they are very interested in the Canadian Arctic and our resources, and we had better get our heads around who our real friends are. And it starts, A, number one, with the United States of America, in spite of who's in the White House. And yet, in those two world wars, we engaged much, much more seriously earlier than the Americans did, Peter. Absolutely right. In both cases. But I, you know, in the case of China, you know, full disclosure, I have clients in China, people I represent. But on that, on that question of China the United States, it's not a choice of either one or the other. But if there's one thing Canadians are know that we've learned about our, our own governance, in Canada, one of the big challenges of any government is managing our relationship with the United States, right? 100%. Why? Because not just the geography, the proximity. And they, they are our allies, our friends. We're very lucky to live next to the United States. And we make the difference between the political leadership and the people, right? But the Americans are a superpower. Superpowers behave like superpowers. That's something Canadians know instinctively. We know the Americans better than they know themselves in a lot of respect. Why? Because our vital interest depends on that. And so... But the Americans behave like a superpower. And what does a superpower do when they don't get their way? They steamroll. Now, what's the reality of our lives? It's a fascinating story, especially for the young people here. We are seeing, emerging in front of our very eyes, a new superpower, China. Well, guess what? China is going to behave like a superpower, as the Americans do. And it's not a matter of choosing one or the other. It's a matter of us deciding where we fit in in the relationship with both. But we, we, to us, be involved in an extradition case where Donald Trump tweets two days later, I'm ready to drop the charges if I get a trade deal with China. You know what makes us, in the rest of the world, doesn't make Canada look very good. I, I, I travel a lot. We, it doesn't make us look very good. That's not the place we want to be. Nor does it look good, Jean, to, to buttress that point when the spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry stands up at a press conference and says, Canada says it doesn't interfere in the rule of law, doesn't call judges, doesn't get involved in, uh, in their, their judicial system. What about SNC-Lavalin? Mm. That looks terrible on our country and harms us internationally. And, and to your point about China and the United States, we're, we're going to get through this period, to be sure. But I'm, I'm picking a democracy every time when it comes to how we align ourselves, especially when our interests converge in our own backyard, which is our resource sector, and it's absolutely the Arctic, which is the next frontier that's opening up. We've got the Russians having reclaimed 14 military bases on their side of the Arctic. We have an Arctic Council where countries want to affiliate because of the yeah. trade routes. And so, again, we, have to, we do have to pick and choose at various points, and we have in our, throughout our history... Yeah. And hopefully we won't get to that, that point in time where we're talking about military. But, you know, we, we are part of NORAD. Yeah. NORAD says, and you, with all of your work in the aerospace, uh, realize that we have to be aligned with certain countries for interoperational reasons and to be able to do, go beyond the, the world of diplomacy. Uh, a U.K. former foreign minister said famously, you know, when it comes to these international relationships... There are no friends or allies. There are only interests. We are almost out of time, so I did want to open the floor. If anybody has a question, just raise your hand. We'll come around uh, with a microphone. We'll probably have time for one or two while we wait for people to raise their hands real quickly and get the microphone there. Oh, Michael's going. Cool. 
Thanks, John. I'll just throw this out to the whole panel, but uh, my question is about the, how inhospitable Canada is to invest in. I was at a, a conference where they had the uh, president of CERI, Canadian Energy Research Association, I believe. And in most of our lifetimes, it, it, it's been known or understood that for every $10 invested in the U.S., $1 would be invested in Canada. That was just the way it was for decades. That's now one in 100. And I guess my question is, how did we get here and are you satisfied that enough is being done to write that metrics? Nicole? Yeah, yeah, I can. yeah Nicole, I'll start. That just, it feels like that is what's trickling down from everything else that's happening, right? So I think we, we can't get big infrastructure projects moving. We can't get a pipeline built. There's things that we're not able to do because we're stuck in this administrative burden. Or maybe we're having issues on the foreign affairs front that is not driving. So I, I think there's just an overall sentiment that's causing foreign investors, foreign investors to back off from Canada. And I think that that will be the real metric that we should look at when we start to turn things around. I'm saying when. Um, because that, that's, we were trying to get that data with the BCC report, where we not holding? And we had a hard time really knowing how much foreign investment had decreased by. But to me, that should be the barometer that we look at. Um, I understand Legault has a thermometer in his office showing how much foreign investment he's brought into Quebec. I think we should be looking at that over the whole country. Difficult to quantify because yeah. um, you, you can trace, obviously, job losses, investment in a company like Encana or Husky. But those who are looking at Canada as potential investors and saying, you know, um, it doesn't look like there's a lot of construction and infrastructure happening. It doesn't look like they're, they're moving on, on energy or climate change or they're, they're moving towards projects. And another sort of barometer, if you will, that nobody talks about anymore is competitiveness. How competitive is the Canadian economy with other jurisdictions, other places where we should be, you know, sending our products, our people and, and our services? So... Yes, I worry, and I think this is your point, is the reputational harm that can be done even in the short term. You know, the, the sort of false start that we were going to go after tax cheats and small businesses, and we often praise them and call them the backbone of the Canadian mm -hmm. economy, but we were going to hammer them because they were using completely legitimate uh, clauses in the Income Tax Act to try to preserve some of their wealth and, and their growth potential. Um, it, it is going to take a, a longer-term plan, and I'm, I'm delighted that we have Goldie and, and others who are working to present you know, nonpartisan advice to government as to how we should be trying to adapt to a 21st century economy. And, and we are out of time, but I like to leave things on an optimistic note. Goldie, uh, maybe everybody can give us quick 10 seconds on a reason to be hopeful. As I said, I trust Canadians. Uh, I think if we take back our country, we'll be able to get things done. I, uh, I look at this country and, you know, we, uh, there's no doubt in my mind this is the best place in the world to live. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that we're fairly lucid about what we need to do to maintain and to keep this the best place uh, in the world to live. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic about our future. I think we're going to do exceptionally well in this new world. I mean, I'm biased, but I think we need to look to our, our startup and entrepreneurship communities. I mean, especially all, I'm meeting so many young people all the time that have all these great ideas. We just need to get some of the barriers out of the way. But if we start adding all those new ideas into our traditional 
companies and businesses, then we will be competitive. So that's, that's what makes me hopeful. Young Canadians, yeah. their ingenuity, their optimism, their, their hope, and uh, their energy, I think, is what carries the day. And uh, their involvement and their engagement. They're, you know, they're choosing different ways to do so on campuses or in the streets. But uh, that brings us back to the basic principle of democracy. And if you don't like your government, you can change the government without the shot of a gun. Are you thinking about something? <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, we ran out of time. Yeah. <laughs> right, there you go. Peter. <laughs> Thank you to everybody on the panel. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was a great way to end. Just, uh, just, a fi- just, uh, just let me express some appreciation. Uh, we, we, come, we come through an election of, of however many weeks it was, uh, lacking in any real substance, and then to be treated to, uh, to a half-hour, 45-minute discussion where it felt like we really got into the issues that mattered. I, I wish uh, this had been a, uh, a uh, microcosm of what we just heard on the campaign trail, but uh, it, proves, uh, it proves what I believe, that if the Empire Club, we're here to uh, put smart people on a stage to tackle issues that matter. Uh, so I, I appreciate each of you doing that. Goldie, uh, you know, a great expression about vision, and I think you're right about uh, what a majority government could look like in this country. Uh, Premier, of course, uh, digging into it. I think your, your points on independent China policy are, are more important than ever. Uh, Nicole talking about entrepreneurship, uh, the need for uh, l- less regulation, and get out of the way of people who, uh, who create jobs and build, build businesses. And of course, uh, Peter, I really appreciate your comments. Uh, we have an energy uh, energy uh, resource in this country that we're just not using, and uh, th- that needs to be uh, job number one. Uh, and of course, John Ehrlichman, a good friend who uh, ably uh, monitored, uh, brought us through this discussion. So thanks to our panel. I will, I will just tell you in closing that we do have some events coming up. On November 12th, we have the Honorable uh, Travis Taves, the Finance Minister from Alberta, who will be at the St. Regis Hotel. November 20th, we have Mark Poeska, CEO of Hydro One, who will be addressing the club. And on November 21st, we have Patrick O'Driscoll, CEO of Corby Spirits and Wines. Uh, I hope you can uh, make it up uh, to one of these events. Thank you very much. This meeting is adjourned. <laughs>